part two of hopefully many with Mr. John Barnwell, who I now see is has less has left the CIA and has now joined the Navy. And um, last time we talked about all things about really everything, but uh, I did make a note of we started you started talking about I don't know why I just said we started talking about like I had any idea you started talking about the Hopi Nation and you were like well that we'll save that for another time and I wrote it down well, not wrote it down put it on my phone and most certainly am following up so we can do an episode about that but Mr. Barnwell please introduce yourself for all the people who were so rude to not listen last time <laughs> Well, in any event, uh, my name is John Barnwell. I'm an author of two books, The Arcana of the Grail Angel and The Arcana of Light on the Path, that present the cosmology of uh, Dr. Rudolf Steiner, the founder of anthroposophy or spiritual science. He's an Austrian, and uh, he has a tremendously... uh, intricate and cohesive body of work spanning some 60, 700 plus lectures and 50 books and articles and and just the internal consistency of his work speaks volumes. If somebody were contriving and just making that stuff up, uh, they wouldn't be able to maintain the consistency. They would forget what they had said and it would be all disjointed, kind of like the way it is on the news. They can't quite get their story straight. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so. Yeah. Uh, in doing that, uh, of course, uh, my closest associate, perhaps and best friend, is Douglas Gabriel from American Intelligence Media, and him and his wife Tyla run that platform and. In association with Americans for Innovation, with Michael McKibben, the inventor of social media. And uh, over the years, we've been doing deep dives, coming up with primary documentation regarding many of the machinations going on in the world. And we considered it important that it was primary documents and not just like opinions of some guy on the internet or something. So we've been able to contribute. And of course, I'm a somewhat of a sideline figure in that I just kind of poke and jab here and there. And uh, the there's a whole constellation of people in different places around the globe that contribute to this. So it's really quite a fascinating endeavor. But uh, at in the late 70s into the early 80s, I was the manager of the largest metaphysical, occult, holistic bookstore in the world, the big Mayflower Bookshop near Detroit. And after I left, Douglas took my place. But uh, in doing that, it brought me in contact with many different authors, gurus, spiritual teachers, uh, syncophants, every every manner of flavor of, of human endeavor across my pathway at that time. And so that was quite interesting, but I had been pursuing these things for a long time before that and had been uh, 
involved in martial arts and I had taught yoga for some time and I've just, uh, I'm conversant in quite a few different disciplines, although the perhaps the nomenclature only comes up when it's an appropriate context. Like our last conversation, I thought you'd feel real comfortable in bringing up Ramdas, that, that that might be right in your wheelhouse. I guess I was right on that count. And uh, But yeah, there's a lot of different people like that that I've encountered, uh, one of which was a meeting in Ann Arbor uh, between uh, Thomas Binyakia, the spokesman for the Hopi Indians, for the Hopi elders, and uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in his first visit to Detroit area, uh, to, to the United States, really. And uh, that was back in, like, 1979, and it coincided with uh, Pope John Paul's first visit uh, in October of 1979. And so that all kind of fits together into a really kind of a interesting and somewhat complex narrative. Well, I would, I would love to hear that. Before we jump into that, I did kind of want to touch on what you said about kind of being involved with all these different fields and all these different interests and how you can kind of bring them up at different times. And that's something a lot of people have, it's probably the most recurring and, and widespread uh, feedback you get about this podcast is sure. I was a biology major, but I mean, that really is just not even come close to what I love to talk about or read about or, or anything in between right now. I'm listening to a book on like the attempt to, to make war palatable in the late 1800s. And just before this was a book about the psychology of killing. And before that was a history of DARPA. And I like to jump all around. And what I've found is, and I've, I've kind of, uh, I've used this analogy before. It seems like the more, the wider diversity of subjects you try to become somewhat well-versed in to say well-versed would be, for me, I wouldn't say I'm well versed. It's a lack of lack of humility. Um, but the more the more you dive into these things, it kind of becomes, and this is the analogy I always use. It kind of becomes like a like math, like an elementary school. You know, Bobby has four apples. Susie takes one. How many apples does he have left? Tommy has ten watermelons. John takes nine. How many does he have left? And it's like it doesn't matter what we're talking about. We can say elephants, or we could say CIA documents from Langley, or we could say anything, or Omicron variants, or COVID variants, you know, if Fauci has nine variants and the Greek alphabet is this many, how many variants does he have left? But what you're teaching is math, and it's this underlying thing, and if you didn't get the message across with apples, maybe you can use watermelons, and you can use bananas, or whatever. I was wondering if, I want to ask you that, if you, because that's what I feel is why I like reading so many different things because it allows you to take these core messages of addition, subtraction, and and more so just other, well, obviously not always math, a whole bunch of different themes about life. And it allows you to kind of put your hand in like a different puppet. And for like last time, you know, you used like Ram Dass on me, right? Or, you know, you had listened to another episode and you're like, you knew I had a sense of humor and wore a CIA hat, right? There's like kind of little 
different little knobs you can use to approach someone. And because as Terrence McKenna always said, I mean, we're completely limited by our, our vocabulary. That's the only, you know, if you're more long in the tooth and you're maybe more eloquent at speaking or writing, you can get your feelings across more. But even that is just the, the simplest of, if you're sending an SOS with Morse code on a ship that, you know, sure it conveys that they're in stress, but you're not seeing like sailors running around screaming, boiler rooms on fire. It kind of condenses everything to just a little, you can send an email and say, I'm sad. That doesn't convey like being next to someone, seeing them crying and it's a rainy day and their shoulders are slouched to where the more things you touch on, I feel like the more adequately you can convey a message, I mean, the best would be just straight up telepathy if you could link your minds together and feel emotions and biases and opinions and memories. And we probably wouldn't have war anymore if we could all feel that. Um, a long way to say, do you feel do you feel that that is a strength? The more fields you can touch on, the the greater number of, of math examples you can use to to talk to people yeah absolutely i mean ultimately it's all about uh communication and communication has the same root as as communion and uh it's like uh Christ at the Last Supper, breaking bread, the bread and the wine, representing the the bread, representing the outer mysteries, and, and the wine representing the inner mysteries, and having around him all these uh, disciples of his. It's this cosmic mystery that's happening, and it represents that whole idea of that there are many vantage points, like Jesus said, he said, I have other flocks. But what does he mean by that, right? Does it mean that there's there could possibly be people that he's considering that don't live in the uh, county yeah. in which he's living or what have you? The, the city, the, the state, the region. And, and that's the ultimate import that you get from Rudolf Steiner's work is that the the mystery of Golgotha, as it's called, the, Golgotha means place of the skull, and it's the the place at which crucifixion occurred. And and at that place, that that according to the legend, that's where uh, the tree of Adam uh, was located, and it's a symbolical image that that is the root of our humanity, so to speak. And and in looking at that and, and but allowing people to be free to, to whatever approach they may have towards that uh, bridge that, that leads to the spiritual world, that leads beyond the physical. And so I I have always tried to be very sensitive to that there are people from other traditions, and they may very well, as I, as Rudolf Steiner is very clear, that other genuine traditions are relating to the same thing in a different way. And so, because if there really is this uh, 
particular being, specific being that is at the center of this mystery that we're all facing, uh, it's perfectly feasible that he would have different names in different cultures, different traditions. And so that is one of the things that's most unique about Rudolf Steiner's work is he shows you how to approach the world mysteries and, and how they find their uh, culmination in this event, which he referred to as the turning point in time. So we've descended into materiality, and now we're going to take what we've been able to develop out of that individual relationship to materiality and then be able to bring that to the spirit so that we have a conscious relationship to it rather than the dreamy relationship we had in the early periods going back towards the Atlantean period and so forth, you know, before 10,000 BC. And so it's, it's nice when you can come across somebody that, that, when you talk to them, even though they're from a completely different tradition and you haven't read the same books, but yet they have the, the same fundamental uh, relationship to it. And, and that's what came up with Thomas Binyakya, the Hopi elder spokesman that I met at that time in Ann Arbor. And that, so it was, it's just, a great affirmation, really, that that we're all in this together, the great family of humanity. And, and what can we do to bring this into a positive event? And uh, another uh, another Ramdas thing I just thought of was he was talking kind of all, all along this note that the, the story unfolds in many different ways and it's not you don't have to go to the Himalayas and meditate with a guru like they can unfold in different ways and he always points back to this story where he said he was giving a lecture in Boston or something and this this old woman comes up to him afterwards with this you know she has the look in her eye that says you know she knows too and she comes up and she goes I didn't understand a word you were saying about gurus and cities and old texts, but she goes, I understand everything that you were saying. And she leans in and she goes, I crochet just, you know, like I knit and Ram Dass goes, he's telling the story and he goes, I guess the game was bigger than I thought <laughs> that the message can unveil itself. And it's, I crochet. It's like, I don't know anything about gurus or Buddhism or, you know, it's an old woman who's probably never left the city limits of Boston. I crochet. Well, I guess the game was bigger than I thought. But with that, let's get into the tale of the Hopi nations and who you met and the really what it is, because I don't know anything about it. So I can't even pretend to give it an adequate uh, introduction because I I truly have no idea what it is, but it will be another tool that I have in my arsenal going forward. Well, uh, so back, as I was saying, back uh, in, in Ann Arbor, we went there, me and, and a couple other people went there with the express purpose of uh, filming the uh, 
speech of the of the Dalai Lama, and uh, of course at that time uh, it was before video cameras. You know, we're talking about 1979, and so we're there with a Super 8. You know, and uh, it was quite amazing because uh, when you when you entered the room, there was all these people milling around, and you look up at the edge of the stage, and there's about 30 spiritual uh, leaders and figures. You know, there's like uh, Tibetan lamas and uh, Indian yogis and all these all these really fascinating individuals all congregating at the, at the foot of the stage and uh, where the Dalai Lama is going to be giving this presentation. And so that was that was interesting, and I immediately recognized certain people, and uh, it was like quite an experience to see them all in, in one room at the same time. But to to move forward to to your question, uh, while I was there, uh, I ended up meeting Thomas Pinyakia, the spokesman uh, for the Hopi elders, and. At the time, I, I used to wear a Celtic cross that I had. It was a silver cross. It's a cross with a circle. In fact, I have one over here. But uh, most people have seen them. Yeah. They know what they are. And uh, when he saw that, he, that's what drew, drew him uh, into his sphere of interest. Drew, drew us in, you know, and, and I thought that was very interesting. And he started uh, to share with us about the, the there's the Hopi prophecies that, that there's these ideograms that are uh, on stone, and they give the prophecies of the Hopi, and they show that there's two different pathways leading into the future, one of which doesn't work out so well and the other one comes to a peaceful resolution and the the Hopi themselves they see that they're a part of the cohesion of nature and that they do their sacred dance and that that helps to bring harmony within the world of the nature spirits and so it's a fascinating culture and I have a, a deep and abiding respect for them and all the indigenous peoples. And, but when I met him, then uh, we walked over because there was a TV set set all over and it happened to be a Pope John Paul who was visiting at the same time, his first visit to the United States between uh, the 1st to the 9th in, in October of 1979. And he's on the TV and he's given his his, his benediction and doing his thing. And, and who walks up at the Dalai Lama? Because he wanted to see the Pope on TV too. And so I introduced Thomas to uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and they started chatting. And we're sitting there, with us and, and a couple other people, watching this TV set that's set up on this stand and right in the kind of in the center of the room, you know, and and it was a very, very congenial, you know, like uh, the Dalai Lama is just really a nice guy, and so is Thomas, and so it was just really a a nice 
warm feeling about the whole thing. But Thomas started explaining to him that in their prophecy, a brother would come from the East wearing white. And there you have the Pope, he's, well, he's dressed all in white, and he's doing his benediction. And he said, and a brother would come from the West wearing that color. And he pointed at the Dalai Lama's uh, saffron glupa uh, colors, right? And, and so he gets into explaining that that is within the Hopi prophecy that was supposed to occur around this time. And I chatted about different things, and a friend of mine asked the Dalai Lama a question, and the Dalai Lama is leaning in very intently, and he says, more important than being smart, being clear. Because <laughs> <laughs> my friend was trying to, like, really give him this, like, deep question, and mind you, uh, English is definitely not the Dalai Lama's first language, especially early at that time. He's gotten better and better over the years. But, um, so... Such a great line. (laughs) Yeah, and I had the good fortune of having the center seat in the very front row when, when he gave his talk, and he just kept looking down and beaming at me with this wonderful smile. But And later on, I ended up becoming uh, good friends with uh, Gaelic Rinpoche, who's uh, like one of his uh, cousins and uh, a Rinpoche, which is like kind of like a archbishop or something like that, equivalent in, in Tibetan Buddhism. And he, but he's an incarnate Lama also. And that when he was a small boy, uh, uh, prayer beads, the mala that had belonged to him in his previous incarnation was hanging on the hands of a statue and it flew off the statue and landed in his hand. And so they said, yeah, it's him. He's the guy. And so whatever it means to be a talku, which is, implies an embodiment. I mean, I could get into explaining what that might mean according to principles of occult science, but we get kind of off the beaten path here too far. But later, uh, after that uh, event occurred, and there's a lot of other details around it, but I asked if I could meet with with uh, Thomas Vinyakia, and, and they set it up for me to meet them at a house in, in Ann Arbor where he was staying while he was there. And so we went there because I had specific questions I wanted to ask him regarding what I had learned about uh, the ancient periods and see to see how it would would uh, relate to uh, his understanding. And so I immediately went to him with these questions, uh, one of which was that, according to my understanding, the Hopi are a branch of the Toltecs, and the Toltecs came from Atlantis. And he said, yes, yeah, the Hopi are Toltec. We came from Atlantis, and other tribes came across uh, Alaska and came down from, from Asia, and we taught them to grow corn. And so the kind of the central 
mystery of, of uh, the Hopi is their, their agricultural uh, mysteries and, and the mysteries of, of corn or maize corn, you know. It's a very colorful corn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he carries a little pouch with him with corn powder. And he would, like, he did a blessing on me with this sacred corn. And uh, the gentleman who had the house he was staying at, he said, you know, one time I saw him do his blessing in a river and he threw it in the water and the water bubbled up in response to the corn. <laughs> so it's a very much a living tradition, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. And I asked him about the, that the Anna Blavatsky and Isis Unveiled talked about caverns uh, that, that tie into uh, North America and all that. He says, yes, there is all of that. And But we got into uh, some of those uh, types of uh, relationships. And I said, oh, and, and according to... Uh, my traditions, this earth is the fourth world. He said, yes, that's, that's, so there's, it's interesting to see somebody who has no experience in, in the things that I'm making reference to. And yet from his own tradition, uh, he has the same kind of supporting uh, knowledge. And of course, according to the, the principles in occult science, the, the Toltecs were the, third sub-race of the Atlantean. And and so that, that makes them... And if you look into some of the indications that have been given regarding them, it was very much having to do with uh, developing agricultural and mysteries of, of reverence for the land and, and the expression of the Great Spirit uh, through the land. Do they have... <clears throat> do they have any any explanation or, or myth of Atlantis? I mean, I know um, for a while, Joe Rogan was having on Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, and, excuse me, and they were kind of piecing together saying that, you know, there is there was indeed a flood like 11,600 years ago. And they're also looking at, I think, what uh, they called impact proxies, basically what would happen when an asteroid hit. And they've kind of got this, this duel, Graham Hancock was always talking about lost civilizations like Atlantis, saying how the Egyptians were far more advanced than our current explanation of them should put them at in terms of like, I guess, rock engraving and carving. And then Randall Carlson, before he ever met Graham Hancock, was kind of, he was going through and saying like, oh, there is evidence of this flood, like, um, just the way like sediments deposited over North America and looking at kind of these mass graves of animals and how, you know, their bones have broken legs. And it's like, this wasn't a slow flood. This was a tsunami coming across the, the, the mainland. And he hypothesizes that there was an asteroid impact in like the North pole or something that pretty much vaporized like what were then the ice caps and led to, like an instantaneous within 24 hours. It wasn't like this 10,000 years of rain. It was just this this instant. I mean, I love it. It's a fun, for, at the very least, it's a fun thing to think about. Not, you know, not all the people that died, but just the idea of, you know, this cataclysmic vaporization and a thousand foot tall waves, you know, basically coming down the earth. And then he and Graham Hancock met up and they found all their dates kind of coincided about civilizations disappearing, right? Atlantis disappearing into the sea. 
and these impact proxies. But the point of all of that is, is so there, there does kind of seem to be, like you were saying, you know, the fourth world, like there are these similar things that regardless of your mythology or your upbringing or the books you've read, there seem to be these these common threads. And the Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson side of it is like, oh, like these these old civilizations, they really did exist. Like these weren't these aren't just cave paintings like these were real. And Randall Carlson going and here's like the archaeological evidence of it. And here's the impact evidence of it in the, in the climate climatological records. All of that is a very like the Dalai Lama said, it's better to be clear than be smart. I'm absolutely the guy he would say that to because I would say all of this and you'd probably <laughs> lean in and go, be clear, Thomas. No one cares about the names that I can rattle off, right? That's all window dressing for when you don't know what you're talking about. When you start citing things like I do, that's because deep down inside, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm on shaky ground. But do they have something that goes – not to completely – Well, we didn't – we didn't explore it in depth. It was just, okay. I asked him, uh, I, I said, you know, according to my studies and coming from my traditions, the Hopi are a branch of the Toltec and the Toltec came from okay. the continent in the middle of the Atlantis, the Atlantic Atlantis. And he said, yes. Uh, it was just, that, okay. All that's, right. that's absolutely the case, you know, is, is the implication. And of course, the, According to the cult tradition, the, the Atlanteans had seven sub-races. The, the, the Atlantis was actually the fourth stage. We're in the fifth period now, and we're in the fifth uh, cultural age of the fifth period. So we're, there's kind of really a central challenge uh, having to do with the, with the fifth. Because, see, when you get into, into the fifth uh, there's what's known as the seven great mysteries, and it's something that I outline in my second book, uh, The Arcana of Light on the Path, and that there's this apocalyptic way of looking at things that, that gives you uh, core uh, initiatory principles, uh, and it ties into being able to help decipher what is essentially states of consciousness. And so if, if you want the easiest way to look at what we're doing here in this fourth world, that's, that's waking consciousness, right? And before the earth existed, there was what's called in, in the Rosicrucian uh, spiritual science, old moon. And old moon was a state of consciousness where we were not physical beings at that time. We were astral beings, see? And, and dwelling in that room, in that realm, in, in a group identification, uh, it's very much uh, mysteries of sympathy and antipathy and all pertaining to uh, the astral state of consciousness, which would be like a dream consciousness, Right. And then preceding old moon is the old sun evolution. And that's like deep, dreamless sleep. That relates to the etheric world, which is the world of life, the world of the plants. And that's preceded by old Saturn condition, which is akin to trance consciousness. 
okay, now why am I saying all of this? Well, as we evolve past Earth evolution, we, if we're following that, that uh, divine spiritual stream, we will be able to bring to consciousness those stages that uh, were encountered by us through our development in, in a more of an, an unconscious way. And so uh, when we get done with Earth evolution, if we follow the wholesome normal stream, we will evolve into the realm of the archangels, of the angels. That will be the future sixth stage, and after that, archangel, and after that, archive. So all of evolution has gone through uh, this sevenfold process of development. And this is a lot for most people to wrap their heads around. Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. But uh, if you approach it, and you can go back to, say, for example, in medieval times where you have the minstrels, traveling around with, with these legendary stories and all of that, giving you archetypes, symbolical expressions that came out of the, the mystery schools that would give you, build pictures in you that would help for you to come to a relationship with these in the realm of ideas in future incarnations. So there, there's this whole continual uh, churning of, of the uh, symphony of, of human evolution that, that there's these pieces that, that come together and what it results in is ultimately a cosmology and, and, and having a way to be able to come into a conscious relationship with all the various facets that are involved in our evolution, meaning that it's largely the relationship between the 12 mysteries of space and the seven mysteries of time. And so we have that. The, the time stream is, is coming towards us out of the future, and that's that astral stream. And it meets the memory stream of the past. And so that's the etheric. And so you have these two coming together, and when you can bring your individual identity, your I am, you know, like Moses experienced it still outside of him on the, you know, the burning bush and the column of fire and smoke and, and all these things. I am the I am. Is the, that's something that's, that's worked unconsciously in man in the endeavor to be able to develop us to the point to where we can awaken to it as a conscious experience. And when one does that, you begin to orchestrate your supersensible vehicles, you know, your chakras, the astral chakras, and then the astral chakras can imprint into the etheric body. And, and you can begin to claim for yourself a measure of eternity because only that which has been brought to a certain level of development will continue on to show that you ever even... Uh, we're involved down here, see? and so that's why you have these these great initiates that that can reincarnate immediately. They don't need it; they've already done the work. They've already have developed vehicles. They are, you know, like what the Tibetans refer to as tulku, is that they that they have uh, embodiments that that 
there's a continuation of, and it, it's it's deeply esoteric, but it's it's the central thread of, of of this mystery that we're trying to solve, and it ties into Christ manifesting in the resurrection body after the crucifixion. You know that that's the highest expression of what we're talking about, and that's a fulfillment of of the prophetic streams of, of many different cultures, not just the the, the Old Testament. So it's kind of like finishing your test early in middle school when you get to go to recess early? Yeah, kind of like that. An initiate is somebody who is manifesting future stages of development in the present. Okay. They're, they've gone ahead of the class. So you, you, know, you went and did your next week's book report this week. Yeah. Got it and then the there's way. other, and then, but there's other beings too that, that well, they flunked. Yeah. And they're still in that realm, and they're and that's your 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 spirits of opposition, and they 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 assert themselves, but see they didn't get it right, and so if you listen to them too much, you're not going to get it right either. It's <laughs> you know? it, it, again, it's a uh, it's it, it's extremely intricate, yeah. and and it's the most difficult subject I know of, which is why it's, it's why it's the best though. <clears throat> taking me, you know, I don't know if I've been working on it 45, 50 years or something like that, and I can confidently say uh, that I'm a somewhat apt beginner. I, I would say you absolutely are. It, uh, it, uh, yeah, you don't don't take advice from the kid who failed who failed four times. Yeah, don't get don't copy off his test. Right? It's <laughs> you got to figure it. Out. And like that, there's often no substitute for just studying and doing the work. You can try to sit next to the smart kid you can try to memorize ultimately i mean i took calculus three times or pre-calculus three times in college and i withdrew each time with an f other than that i was a 4.0 student and i finally realized on the fourth time around i was like i'm just gonna get a tutor i'm gonna stay late after class because ultimately all the extra studying i put in is nothing in comparison to having to repeat the class for a fifth time and it was like save the the semester of going to class twice a week for four months like just do the work um mr barnwell i gotta run to the restroom real quick can you tell everyone where to where to get your books and your website and yeah, sure. twitter and all that good stuff thank you all right well in any regards let's see here this is my first volume 640 pages and it has a, a forward by Douglas Gabriel from American Intelligence Media and also includes extensive series of cosmological diagrams that I notate all through the volume. And uh, my second book is The Arcana of Light on the Path. It's more of a meditative tool. And the whole series of diagrams are included in this book Plus, I added a great many more so that you have a really full uh, memory theater, so to speak. Ars Reminiscenda. And so it, my books are available in the continental U.S. on eBay. You can buy them directly from me. If you're outside the U.S., uh, you can contact me by private message uh, on my academia website link or on uh, private message in Facebook and uh, or if you're 
uh, capable of getting a hold of Tommy here. He can just uh, hook me up with you or we'll work it out somehow. But they're available on eBay here in the States. And uh, you can also find that information on my Twitter account at at John Barnwell 888. And I have posted up at the top, there's my academia link. And I also have the the Crown Gate thread that I put together based on the research that we did at American Intelligence Media and Americans for Innovation regarding the machinations of the cabal. It's a weird thing, though, is the kind of more, and not to say this because I certainly have not, I would say I'm maybe, I've maybe gone up one stair on the infinite flight of stairs to enlightenment, but it's, it's an odd thing when you think about, you know, the cabal and not even in a conspiratorial sense. I mean, like the very real, you know, Eisenhower, you know, military industrial complex, Smedley Butler, war is a racket, JFK, for we are opposed around the world. Very real. I mean, everyone knows it. You know, you don't even have to go into stuff that I like to go into, like an Illuminati or Great Reset, but rather just very real, right? Human traffickers, cartels, all that, all that shit, terrorism. It's an odd thing when you realize that you have to love everyone, including the demons. And it's when you feel that discomfort in your stomach, like how, you know, you can radiate love to maybe a friend who you had a falling out with or, you know, an, an, an ex-significant uh, other. You know, when enough time passes, you can realize that you're just people who maybe went on divergent paths. It's very hard to look at a Hitler or a child molester or, a, you know, a, a, a drug cartel drug. beheading people. It's very hard to look at them and open your heart. But I feel like deep down, I know that it's where there's discomfort, there's work to be done. And uh, an attraction or an aversion shows that there's work to be done. And man, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to come to terms with that, like you said, you know, you can kind of transcend or you can get stuck in the world of the opposites of the, you know, the light versus the dark, the up and the down, the left and the right. And you know, it was really, I, I don't think I really had a question in there. I think that was more just kind of a statement about that's a hard thing to come to terms with. Um, what you were saying about kind of the evolution to the angels, to the archangels, I was going to ask, is there anything new under the sun? Or is it just all repeating forever? Well, it's it's thematically it repeats, but it's it it doesn't continually repeat in the same way. Okay. That that so uh, like the fourth stage in in the evolution of a being is is the equivalent human stage. Okay, but. That does not imply that, that it was the same or is going to be the same way uh, for other beings, see, because uh, they may have gone through their evolution uh, and therefore stage they weren't physical like we are. 
See, they didn't they didn't have a dense physical body because they didn't experience the same kind of cosmic drama that we did with the with the fall uh, from the intervention of the Luciferic spirits and the Aramonic spirits in, in the way in which they uh, infiltrated human evolution, but which give us the possibility of freedom. So that there's without that freedom, then we'd be what do we do? Really well behaved, but we'd be like really well behaved kind of marionettes, you know? It's yeah, like if you're just like God's marionette, then you're you're not really expressing your own uh, free will. So we have the capacity to make mistakes uh, as opposed to like you could imagine other evolutions where they don't even have a word for lying because it's inconceivable that anybody would lie, you know. So it, it, you have to have a really a, a wide open view uh, of possibilities because it, it, it's not going to be the same. It's, it will be similar. It will, it will go through. It's it's always according to my understanding of it is that there it's always the sevenfold uh, theme expressing, but in manifold different ways depending upon uh, the individual situation. So it's like it's absolutely incredible, really, that when you start considering these things. And part of the beautiful beauty of it is Rudolf Steiner made the point because he started a group with with young people. Uh, they they wanted to get an initiative going, and he was very encouraging of it. And some of the older anthroposophists became critical of these young people because, you know, they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's or what have you. And Rudolf Steiner said, no, no, no. It's not important that you always uh, are, get it right. What's important is the sincerity of your striving. Yeah. That, that that's the thing that's going to lead you in the, in the right way. And so that's why art is higher than philosophy. Art, art is older than philosophy. People were doing art before they were doing philosophy. Philosophy is quite a late stage development, yes? And so uh, in getting into understanding what is the purpose of art, the purpose of art is to, is to keep culture developing. And so when you, it's, it's hard to imagine, but the, what was the impact of like the Gothic cathedrals on culture, for example? I mean, agriculture developed around the cathedrals. It was the, the Cistercian monks and all of these uh, different orders were the ones that were getting organized agriculture going. And, and so that's like, wow. You know, and and you see everybody coming together, and you have the the, the gesture of the praying hands in the cathedral itself. You know, and then you can look and you can say, well, what about music? I mean, it's it's really hard to to realize the extent to which, for example, Beethoven and and uh, Mozart and and Bach and and all these. Uh, Composers, the impact that they had on the capacity of people to be able to to innovate, the, the whole idea of innovation that that came about through uh, 
music, yeah. symphonic music, and the operas of Richard Wagner. And, and I mean, it's it's people don't think along the terms to think that that would contribute, but yet it does. See, yeah. and, and that's that's a real key to understanding European cultures, the, the central place that that the arts have in in the outspringing of cultural developments. Yeah, it's yeah. When you see a new piece of art, when you hear a new, when you hear a song where someone's just doing something that's never been done before, just some you know what I can only imagine would be like seeing Jimi Hendrix for the first time. It you go well. This is occurring in this reality. He's he's obeying the laws of physics. He's using acoustics. I I'm, I have the same ears that are listening to it. That you know my parents grew. You know. It's or I'm saying this as someone like alive in the '60s. You know, your parents, you know, your your greatest generation parents were listening to big band music, and before them, whatever you know, the I don't know the, the Charleston or the hell they were doing before World War One or back and back and back. We're in the same paradigm. They're doing something. It's like when someone makes a painting. It's like they're using the same colors. I'm looking at. The, I'm using the same cones and rods in my eyes to perceive the electromagnetics but it it bends it in a way that that shows that you're like oh there's more there is more to this world like they're they're clearly doing i'm not i don't know if i'm putting it's like when you rearrange a room or something that's been the same for 20 years and you rearrange it and all of a sudden it's this whole new feeling and you're like oh what else is that applicable to in life? You know, what other possibilities are there? Have we really found everything out? And on a side note, I was going to say about like the cathedrals and agriculture, yeah, you kind of see it again later where, you know, not even to make some edgy statement, but like newer cathedrals of like the 80s and 90s would maybe be like the American Mall. And what do you have around it, right? A bunch of fast food. And then you could fast forward to 2021. We would say that maybe our, our center of agri or not agriculture of entertainment and 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 I guess bonding like the new campfire is like the big flat screen watching Netflix and you could say the things that develop around it would maybe be like delivery or Uber Eats or something and it's this weird yeah art does push it forward it almost seems like art is like the like the horse and like the rest of culture and politics is kind of just on a chariot that's like tethered to it and it's maybe it's like who push it whoever controls art controls the world and then ironically enough the people that control art often have no desire to control anything <laughs> so it's just this this mad comet flying direct without direction and that's where society goes i just talked myself into a rabbit hole now i don't know how to get out of it <laughs> well that's good because if you go back to uh, the great diarist uh, Samuel Pepys, who was uh, he he wrote his diaries and he had his own code. And once it was decoded, it became quite a a, a thing uh, to understand. He was contemporary with with uh, oh you know like the the into the Elizabethan and, and the. Stuart period and all of that, but so he get he gives some very interesting pictures of that period of time. But but he says, uh, culture is that which remains after you've forgotten what you set out to do. 
<laughs> and so it's that whole idea that, that it's something that, that is organically developing. And so uh, the problem with so much of what's called modern culture is it's, it's intentionally uh, a commercial endeavor. And so it's like, it's fallen, you know, and, and you can see the fall in architecture because I don't see, you know, my great grandfather was at a, a large construction company and they built most of the Catholic churches and the, and the uh, Blessed Sacrament Cathedral here in Detroit and Henry Ford's Highland Park uh, assembly line plant and all that. And you see the, the, Remarkable agriculture, or I mean, architecture that was developed, and there was so much character in in all the various architects that were working in Detroit. And uh, actually, uh, Albert Kahn was one of the architects that he worked with. And, and in fact, if you watch the Tigers play baseball, if you look out center field, you can see the DAC, the Detroit Athletic Club, that my father's great grandfather's company was. Uh, one of the companies that worked on that. There were several. My grandfather lived in one of the apartments upstairs. And so Detroit was like this this Paris of the Midwest, it's, it's sometimes described, because it has that uh, wheel-like uh, structure of the roads, like, like Paris, you know, and you had eight miles surrounding the city, and then all these roads that, that rate in like spokes. And it was really a beautiful city back when I was young. I started out in Detroit, and uh, it, it went into a decline after that. But it's going through a rebirth in certain areas of the city. People are traveling from as far away as Europe, and but they're artists, and uh, because it's it's inexpensive, you can get yeah. this great great big uh, place to put in a studio, and just uh, cost you a few hundred bucks a month. You know, and so. That was kind of the way Greenwich Village was. And then it got to the point to where so many uh, plastic surgeons and lawyers started uh, building their residences there. Now no artist can afford to live in Greenwich Village anymore. So that that's ran its course. But uh, it's that kind of something that happens as a result of people striving after uh this uh, creativity, they're following their bliss, so to speak. They're, yeah. you know, it's because they want to to be creative that their culture arises. See, and, but in if you go into the the Gothic cathedrals again, like I was indicating, those are anonymous, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't know who it was really. Usually, I mean, there's uh, I've studied the cathedrals quite a bit over the years and there there are instances where an artisan up on the roof up where nobody ever goes he just happened to put his name yeah. down like that, that he was involved in this great endeavor and so there's this kind of selflessness this idea of wanting to to be a part of that which contributes to the the community you know, and so it's that's a beautiful thing, and, and that's that whole idea of that we're connected. That there's this, and that's something that really has more to do with the future when it will be of our natural being 
if we were within wholesome evolution, to be more concerned for the welfare of other people than for ourselves. Yeah, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they won't sit under, right? <clears throat> or great things can happen when no one's concerned with who gets credit. But I mean, you do. I mean, you see that in New York, though. I mean, you know, I've I've always loved skyscrapers ever since I was little, and I still do. And I mean, you look back, and there's well, there, there will always be a case of looking back romantically at things that happened before you were born. And I would imagine if you went back to the 1930s, they'd be saying, oh, man, those guys in the 1850s really knew where it was at. So there's always, you know, one day, as much as I can't comprehend it, someone's going to look back and be like, back in the 2020s when people were real. And it's like, what What are you talking about? But it's the right. You go to any YouTube video, go to any song, man, back when music was real. And I'm like, hey, I was in middle school when this came out. And I can tell you right now, it was shit. It, It was we were all shitheads. But you're looking back. Now you have, you know. 15 year olds and they look back and they're like nintendo 64 back when video games were fun and i'm like dude when we were growing up we had nintendo 64 we were like atari back when it was real so there's always that rose colored romanticism rose tinted romanticism that being said you look at something like new york like new york like the art deco period and you look at like the chrysler building and just like the work with like the limestone and the bricks and the huge like silver eagles and it's like the you know the beautiful almost cathedral-esque top and it is you look at uh or was penn station or um you know grand central station and then if you like zoom out now if you're looking at grand central station the backdrop is the monolithic what was i think the pan am building if it's not was something and changed that just a huge ugly just looks like 1984 ministry of truth building and yeah. uh, but the thing is is like unless you are deeply into architecture and as much as i like architecture not enough that i could name names i mean i could say uh, i think it's adrian smith designed like the burj khalifa it's the world's tallest building i couldn't i couldn't list who named the empire state building or the chrysler building or you know, it's so there is this sort of anonymous uh, selflessness to to build these great things. But what I what I want to say is what you're saying about, you know, people moving into Detroit because, yeah, you can just get this you know old timey mansion for like, you know, 10 bucks. Not really, but you kind of see a microcosm of what we're talking about. The whole it's not a direct repeating of itself, but. It's like the history doesn't history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It's that, and on a microcosm, you can even see it. So it's like over time, it 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 repeats itself in very similar ways, but then over space, it also repeats itself in very similar ways. From you know an electron and the proton to Earth and the Sun to the Sun in the center of the galaxy, you see these microcosms of, uh, of these cycles of you go in, you create this organic thing and it's wonderful. And then everyone comes in and kind of taps into it too. And then it goes through the phase of where it gets tapped by, you know, corporate and it becomes this cash cow. And then eventually it's, it's raped to death of any of its true artistic value. And they prop it up like weekend at Bernie's. And then eventually it falls away and a new piece of art breaks through and it's, this is the real thing. And I mean, from, you know, the, you know, early Beatles to, 
eventually you know john lennon in like a ten thousand dollar like mink fur coat and you're like that's not the guy that wrote imagine like it is but it's not there are these kind of these cycles of it starts with this this burning this new kind of going westward in the covered wagons where you establish this true gritty whatever it is and then it gets content and it gets bloated and like roman like Roman Empire indulgences it eventually drowns in its own its own uh, hedonistic pleasure creates a, a a metaphorical and sometimes literal wasteland and then in that wasteland you see kind of the rebirth of people coming back in again and it seems like it can't really be evaded there's almost like the waves keep coming it's like that's reincarnation the waves keep coming endlessly you might as well learn how to surf if that makes sense. Again, I don't yeah. really know where I went with that, but <clears throat> well, it's it, it it's very helpful because once you can begin to develop uh, what you might call uh, thematic reoccurrence, right? That there's this whole concept within esoteric Christianity of of thematic recapitulation. Okay, so that. Uh, in developing the uh, themes of evolution that that are tied into to understanding the procession of the equinox is is one of the basic themes. There was a book out that came out uh, back in the eighties, Hamlet's Mill, in which there was an exploration of that theme. But there's this whole idea that. Uh, a human being is the universe in miniature. So that's that microcosm, macrocosmic, thematic thing. And you see that in the classic representation of the procession of the equinox, which is the first day of spring uh, on the eastern horizon, you have uh, the sidereal field, the starry field behind it, okay? And it's going backwards through the zodiac, okay? And it's going like one degree every 72 years, right? And so that's the great breath, as, as it was uh, described by uh, the poet A.E., the Irish poet, theosophist, George Russell. But if you look more closely at that, you can see that that whole processional cycle is imaged in, in a, a human being because you're, what is, what is the, the pulse of, of a human being and its, its relationship between the rhythm of the heart and the breath. And so if, if you work out that formulation, you'll see that you take on average 25,920 breaths in a day, okay? Which is the procession of the equinox is classically given the platonic great year as 25,920 years, see? So that you are a, a microcosmic image of this whole process. And so the, this, this period that we're referring to, Atlantis, the final sinking of Atlantis, the end of the of the Ice Age, happening. Uh, it was about ten thousand BC or thereabouts, right? And following that, you have the Great Migration coming out of that, and from periods 
just before then and after, there were these migrations that came out of Atlantis from the mystery centers. And so you have a northern stream that came across Europe, and then you had a southern stream that came across and crossed uh, near the Mediterranean through Egypt. And leading these were, were initiates, individuals that were in advance of the community that they were leading. And so you have these great figures, the Manu or Noah, all the uh, Utnapishtim, for example. And this is something I've explored quite extensively because I created a relational database. I didn't create the software, but I compiled a database of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamian studies of some 15,000 volumes. Uh, with You can look up subjects and it would tell you which books to go get to, uh, if you wanted to find out about canopic jars in Middle Kingdom, Egypt. You could enter it in and it would tell you, well, go look in this book over here, this one, that one, that one, right? And by the way, most of the books on the subjects I'm talking about, people don't even know they exist because it's scholars talking to each other. These are like very limited printings and, you know, it's just things that you would never see. You're not going to see them at Borders, you know, or even on Amazon. And uh, I also had done, previously I, d I had done one on esotericism on one of the largest private occult libraries. And so I've had uh, exposure to a lot of these different things, and it, it gave me the opportunity to explore primary documentation, you know, regarding you know, ancient uh, Egyptian, Akkadian, uh, Sumerian, uh, and all these different mythic streams. And, and they all seem to agree, you know. So you have, like, for example, in, whereas in India they have Manu leading uh, a post-Atlantean period in the pre-Vedic mysteries, whereas in the Epic of Gilgamesh, who do they go meet with in the Burgenland? You know, the, the, it's it's uh, uh, Inkadu and, and Gilgamesh, right? They get into their fight, oh, yeah. you know, and, and Gilgamesh is said to be like, you know, half, he's like a, a divine human, so to speak. He's like a, a titan, as they would call it in Greek mythos. But he, he ends up meeting uh, Inkadu, who's also sometimes called the Abani, but they, they get into a fight, and, and Inkadu is like this primitive, hairy guy, you know, and they fight, and they end up wrestling with each other for, for like, you know, all day, you know. And finally they go, okay, they, they, they called it a tie, and they ended up traveling to go visit this, this tin mystery center, which would be in Europe in the Burgenland. But anyways, uh, Inkadu passes away uh, on the journey, but he becomes like a titulary spirit for Gilgamesh. And the Gilgamesh goes, and he's initiated into the mysteries of tin, and so that the copper coming together with the tin, that's the whole idea that, that, that that's how bronze came into being, is the, this coming together of the tin mysteries of Jupiter and the copper mysteries of Venus. And so you have this, this archetypal representation of something that's a, a very significant event 
in human history, bronze, because if you look at the, the, the pages of culture turning, you see that like what would happen? A new culture would come along and they would have superiority yeah. because like, well, my, my weapon's bronze. And so if you got, if you got a copper weapon, I'm going to chop your copper weapon yeah. right in half because yeah. it's, you know, and then the iron age came along. And, and so there, there is this whole, uh, martial aspect regarding uh, the interaction of various cultures because they were all contained within their own uh, stream. They were in these like uh, uh, culture uh, centers and and they were developing uh, in different culture centers you could incarnate and develop certain capacities and and so Many of us, uh, most of us, have gone through all manner of, of various cultures. And in fact, Rudolf Steiner makes a point about the Old Testament prophets, that they were incarnations of individuals that had been through other cultures, and that becoming a prophet in the Old Testament, it was their first exposure to, to uh, the, the Judaic culture, uh, which is a fascinating concept. And and but it's important to keep in mind. We're just trying to make some point. Don't don't just believe what I say. Mm -hmm. Just uh, maintain a healthy suspension of disbelief, because the reason he's been able to be consistent throughout thousands of lectures is because he's dealing from experience. He's not just constructing things. Trying to trying to develop a, like a novel of sorts that that he's actually and you can see it in some of his lectures where he's talking and he goes oh now I see he's literally describing to you events from the Akashic record while he's experiencing it clairvoyantly and that's the, a point I want to make and it's not some abstract notion that he formulated. See, so that's a, a difficult thing for people to grasp, but I just throw it out there. And uh, But a lot of that, you can go to the uh, Rudolf Steiner archive, has been maintained by my friend over many, many years. In fact, he, he came out of the, he was involved in, in the internet before it was really public, the ARPANET. Uh -huh. and, and so there's this, Tremendous archive of, of Rudolf Steiner's works available where you can go and you can do searches on subjects and, and look things up. And, and it's just an incredible endeavor. And so that you, could, you could check some of the subjects I make reference to on there. I was going to say, yeah, the uh, another fascinating parallel between Gilgamesh and Enkidu kind of battling is uh, like the very, the very like civilizations that rise from it, right? It's bronze or copper to bronze to iron, and it's these sort of these uh, metamaterial, some sometimes metallurgical one-upmanship, where it's you know who who has better armor in World War Two to the Cold War. It's well our new material stealth, and on and on and on, and it is. But like those two battling, they kind of cannibalize one another or join together to sort of give birth to the next one. And just like the procession of the equinoxes or your own breaths, you kind of see that 
echoing out on larger scales of these two things battling, merging, becoming a new dominant thing. And then that dominant thing is used to beat the other person over the head. And then they battle, 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 merge and become a new thing. And, you know, like breaking the sword and then folding it back over and, and melting it again. It's just all these, it's all so different, yet it's completely repeating itself through both time and space. It's just this this echoing thing, but it's just echoing through different mediums, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Because that's that's kind of a, what you can call apocalyptic thinking. So you could take your present situation in the fourth. It was preceded by three and followed by three. And the, and the three following are recapitulations of the, the three that went before. So the first is recapitulated in the seventh. The second is recapitulated in the sixth. And the third is recapitulated in the fifth. See? So, so you have that. And so that when you start to understand that that has a relationship to states of consciousness relating to the, the Atma, Buddhi, and Manas in the Eastern system, or the uh, spirit man, life spirit, and spirit self in, in uh, Rudolf Steiner's uh, naming, uh, or the, the Father, Son, Holy Ghost uh, in, in the normal Western Christology, that this is universal. And, and, and so it's a question of, you could develop a language system, and, and you're right about what you were saying much earlier, that uh, uh, what Terence McKenna talking about, that the boundary of your thinking is, is based on your language system, that there is that whole idea of the role in which linguistics plays. And that's part of the problem in modern cultures, that there's been a dumbing down of vocabulary, that, that if, if, you can, if you don't have the word, can you think the thought? See? I mean, that, that is a challenge. And yeah. so let me get into the idea about semiotics and, and symbolical language. And, and that all has a, a part to play. But again, when you go into the universal language, which is the arts, you see that you can plant a seed that will lead to a future capacity. So, like, for example, Rudolf Steiner uh, characterizing the Renaissance as a period set aside for the spreading of Christianity through art. Boy, that kind of sums up a lot, doesn't it? You know, I mean, and when you think about it, and then when he talks about, like, say, the works of, uh, like, a Raphael or... or uh, Michelangelo or Da Vinci, one of them, he says, look at them as though you're wanting to come into relationship with the inspiration that was behind that great work of art. Like he said, if uh, we're a being to come from another planet and see the, the painting of the Last Supper, he would, he would immediately be able to, to derive from that something that's very, very central to understanding human culture. And I'm, of course, paraphrasing. I'm not using those exact words, but it's that whole idea that, that there's a participation 
of consciousness in higher beings. Like, for example, when they, they refer to uh, Isaiah as a messenger. Well, what does that mean? Well, the, the word messenger, what is, what is angelos? Angelos is messenger. Angel means messenger. So they're telling you that there is an angelic presence in the consciousness of Isaiah. That he's, he's not just an ordinary human being. See? And so there's all these little keys that are in there, and that's why, oh, when you get into, uh, like, for example, Wittgenstein, uh, who was basically the summation of Western philosophy, even though he came to it late in life, and he basically showed the boundary of language as it pertains to uh, philosophy, you know, and his, he, he became an understudy of Bertrand Russell, right? And he ended up, you know, in a matter of a few years, okay, I figured that, okay, and went beyond it. And, and the whole set theory that developed out of Wittgenstein's blackboard drawing on just something he said, well, for example, you could do this, you know, and he wrote on the board and that became a basis of, of a great deal of thought of, of Alfred North Whitehead and a lot of different people to follow. So if you get into the philosophical side, that's all very interesting too. But I, I had a friend who used to teach philosophy up in uh, Canada, University of Toronto, and he had this fascinating uh, head of the department there was a guy who, his, his wife actually was a Waldorf teacher, which is the, the school system that was started by Rudolf Steiner. But this philosophy teacher, he had a student that was, was giving a presentation of, of set theory. And he, and he the student is, is doing his thesis and he's saying, there are natural languages in which a positive and a positive equals a positive a positive and a negative equals a positive, a positive and a negative equals a negative and a negative and a negative that equals a negative, but there are no languages where a positive and a positive equals a negative. And, and the head of the department from the back of the room, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's like there's like someone that someone wrote like there's no way in the English language to to portray sarcasm and then someone rewrote it but every letter was was capitalized and it's the whole like there's no way to say that there's sarcasm <laughs> yes there is you know when people uh, on social media they capitalize and say what are you screaming for yeah exactly and it's like we're very yeah 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 and it's just one yeah. That just yeah, cooked my well, brain. That was a koan in a way. That just cooked my brain. <laughs> Mr. Barnwell, let's wrap this one up because you have thoroughly yeah, fried my brain. I think we're good. I think that we've given us stuff to think about. I think we gave the old college try. And uh, I'll shoot you an email. I would love to do another. And... Uh, I'll put your books in the description, your website in the description, as last time, your Twitter, all that good stuff. And, really, and uh, I'll be still, we're not still, about, well, this is just a recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on. Let me, let me, let me stop recording. So three, yeah. two, 